Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name is David Stoker and I want to welcome you to another episode of Better Life and Recovery. Today we are going to be talking with Michael King and I think we're going to be talking a little bit about community organizing. I've actually just got to spend the last two days with him going through a couple different trainings and I think I'll actually start this off by letting Michael kind of introduce himself and talk a little bit about who he is. Thanks, David. Uh, Well, I'm Michael King, and first and foremost, I'm a person in long-term recovery, which for me means I haven't had a drink, a drug, or placed a bet since February 16th of 2013. And recovery has, uh, you know, brought about just a series of tremendous gifts in my life. I get to be a loving, responsible, and attentive father. I get to be a a tax player and a community member and a partner and a friend. Um, But really, I I always say that the single biggest gift that recovery has given me is the reflection that I get to look at in the mirror every single morning. Uh, I'm someone who, you know, for the first 30 plus years of my life, uh, just never was able to look at that reflection and truly and honestly and authentically like what I was looking at uh, and feel proud of what I was looking at. I never felt that way. And recovery has brought that to me, a reflection that I can look in the mirror and uh, genuinely respect um, and love every day and, and continue to work on every day and grow every day. And that's just, that's the gift that really keeps on giving. Wow. Wow, that was a nice introduction. (laughs) <laughs> so, so I met you through Facing Addiction, and I know that you were doing a communities project. Um, my question to you would be, what, what first got you interested in doing this communities project? Well, so what, what really, what happened, I, I started working with Facing Addiction in May of 2015. And it was in preparation for the event that eventually sort of officially launched Facing Addiction, which a lot of folks probably remember was the Unite to Face Addiction concert in Washington, D.C. And so I I had this the dubious luxury of um, being the organizer tasked with essentially working to, to mobilize every single state that didn't touch the Atlantic Ocean. So because I was the only organizer who was based on the West Coast, so I live in Seattle. So basically every state that doesn't touch the Atlantic fell into my category with only a few exceptions. And in fact, Virginia actually was one of my states as well. And Virginia, of course, does touch the Atlantic. So my turf, if you will, literally went from sea to shining sea. (laughs) And um, it was such an amazing experience because right off the bat, kind of new to this movement, new to this community, but with a long background prior to recovery in politics and in organizing on issues, um, suddenly I got thrust into this to a recovery-related movement, which was such a big deal for me because recovery kind of is the first personal, number one and remains really the first personal passion in my life. 
um, I got thrust into this movement and I got to do so in a way where suddenly I was connecting with folks in Ohio and Missouri and California and Texas and the Dakotas and Montana, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, every state I was making all these amazing contacts with people. And A, I was just inspired by the uh, passion that I saw in the movement. But what I kind of came to find was that um, the passion that people had wasn't always married to commitment. And what I mean by that was that everyone was getting up and working hard every day. But there didn't always seem to be a lot of follow through. There didn't always seem to be a lot of uh, kind of commitments maintained. And, and, and my experience uh, as both a political worker as well as an organizer was that uh, commitments was where it was happening. Commitments was where action took place and it was commitment and action that led to results. And I felt that I, I wasn't seeing that to the extent that I would wanted to see it on this particular issue because I cared about the issue so much. And so from the earliest days as I, I moved on to another role with, with facing addiction, I, I started to sort of think about how could we develop a program that could really aim at bringing some of these fundamental community organizing principles and frameworks to this issue, to the issue that I cared about so much. And I had all these, ama I'd met all these amazing people from all over the country. It was like, here's the audience for it right here. Um, right. So I developed that program. I was kind of given the freedom and the leeway to develop this program, and it launched in a pilot format back in 2017. And uh, I picked 15 communities. I remember from the initial interest, there were 54 communities across the country that expressed an interest in it. Uh, picked 15. Uh, you and I got to know each other because Springfield was one of the 15 that got selected for that process. And uh, that began this amazing journey that has culminated now in the Communities Project uh, entering an entire new phase where it's living and breathing uh, separately as its own entity um, with the, the fiscal sponsorship uh, of the McShin Foundation, which I'm incredibly grateful for, but gets to operate uh, essentially as its own independent program. So um, that's kind of the origins of it. And what I'm most proud of, though, is that some of the results that it started to produce. Um, you know, I, the credit for the day-to-day -day work goes to communities. It doesn't go to Certainly not me, it doesn't go to us, it goes to the communities. You know, a, a community in Georgia is gonna be opening up a recovery community center in 2019 because of their blood, sweat, and tears, their hard work. But the origins of that goal, of opening up a recovery community center, started in, in as a result of the, the communities project. Um, you know, I think you, you were just mentioning to me, David, that some of the, this amazing documentary that you all produced on families and, um, how addiction is impacting families. You know, you to get the credit for that. We didn't do it. Um, Facing Addiction didn't do it. Communities Project didn't do it. I certainly didn't do it. But I think you were saying that kind of the origin of it and the thought process came from the Communities Project. Uh, in other communities, they've been able to open treatment centers. They're looking at more effective prevention practices. All of these amazing results that have all come about using the basic framework and principles of community organizing. And that's really what the project's all about. Yeah, what I liked about the project um, is going through, one of the things is learning the difference between goals, strategies, and tactics. Mm -hmm. and, and it was kind of funny because I realized that, that for us, facing addiction was a tactic. Uh-huh. You know, um, because in a way, well, not facing addiction, the communities project mm -hmm. was a tactic. Mm -hmm. You came in and you were almost kind of a catalyst um, that, that helped us learn how to better bring people together to create to, to kind of create power mm -hmm. and find that power base so that we were able to 
to reach a goal, which was creating that documentary to better educate the families who see it, you know, and hopefully foster open conversation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm thinking that, that for the podcast, it might be really important for people that are listening to this to learn how to kind of kind of create that kind of be that community organizer Mm -hmm. because i'm involved with a lot of organizations that get together and we either have board meetings or we have these opioid planning meetings and literally we meet once a month uh every other week and then we leave and nobody does anything. Mm. And I think that's really frustra- starting to frustrate a lot of people mm-hmm. is we have these amazing meetings and you have a ton of passionate people, but kind of like you said, there's no commitment. Mm. So because of that, we have people that are, that are going and talking about all these things they're gonna do and then there's really no follow through once they leave that meeting. Mm-hmm. So, so how are some ways maybe that, that if somebody's seeing that, they can maybe spark some what is the word I'm trying to find here? Um, that they can maybe spark some momentum, create some momentum, and actually have people that follow through. I mean, what would you tell somebody if somebody walked up to you and said, listen, we have these meetings all the time, and I know you would just ask some questions. <laughs> but, but here I'm actually saying, what is some uh, advice that you might give if I came up to you and said, listen, Michael, uh, because I will tell you right now, that's one thing that you do really well, is you ask questions to get me to say, oh, this is what I would do. But unfortunately, there's people that are listening to this that that what I would do may not help them. So if you elicit me saying, hey, here's what I would do in my community, it might not help them in their community. Like, if, So if you have somebody that's trying to, to become a community organizer and actually get something done, what are a couple of those building blocks maybe that they can use to lay a foundation so that they can actually get people invested, involved, and moving forward with sure so i i think first off you have to understand what is community organizing because i do think it's often um kind of a misunderstood term so the the way that i i the definition that i like to use for people and and it comes from oxford living dictionaries i didn't come up with it is the coordination of cooperative efforts and campaigning carried out by local residents to promote the interests of their community. So just to be clear what that means, coordinating means working together. That means aligning all of these different folks who are impacted by addiction. Maybe they're family members who have lost loved ones. Maybe they're family members with folks in recovery. Maybe they're people in recovery themselves. Maybe they're professionals in some cases who are already doing work. Aligning everybody behind common goals and then taking action in order to get something done in the interest of the community. So that's what organizing is. And it's about, you mentioned the word power, and that's really what organizing is. it, it, It points back to the exercise of accumulating power and not short-term temporary power but durable power power that lasts power that's sustainable because organizing shouldn't be about attaining one goal and then moving on it should be about attaining one goal and then attaining another goal and then another and then another there's always going to be a new work to do so what an organizer does is they empower and i I often say the reason why I, i i answer questions with questions is because i don't think there's any empowerment in advice And I think what's important to know, and for anybody listening, it's that you have the ability to do this. Nobody needs to teach you anything. You have all the answers already inside of you. You just need to have it brought out. And I think that's a real centerpiece of of 
understanding that anybody here can do it. Now, what might be the practice that you'd actually put into play? Number one is you need to figure out how to align who has the power in your community. These are the folks who are able to make choices that are gonna have either a positive or a negative impact on addiction in your community. You also need to bring together everybody who's impacted in order to gather power yourself. You will have more power and with power, you're able to make more choices and have a bigger impact. The more people you align behind these common goals that you're working on. And then community organizing comes down to a question of, of determination, tenacity, passion, because you need passion. Passion is what gets you out of bed in the morning, but then commitment. Now, what I always say is there isn't a silver bullet. These aren't the types of challenges that have one answer. The answer is you do X. That's not really how organizing works. It's not you do X, it's that you do. And what I mean by that is you take action. It means whatever, you know, when you come out of a meeting and, and you have three to four action steps that you're gonna take after meeting, organizing is the doing of the action. Um, it's not taking specific actions, it's taking action. So if you're not taking action or people you're trying to organize aren't taking action, you need to figure out why. And the number one way you're gonna figure out why are people, you know, you often hear, how come I can't get more people to my follow-up meeting? How come people aren't taking action when, I've, when they said that they would? The answer is, I don't know, but you might wanna ask, but you might wanna ask them right. and then listen to the answer they give and then remind them of the answer they give and then empower them to do something else. And if they don't do that, ask them why they didn't do that and let them give you the answer. I think that's part of the key of not only being a successful organizer, but being a more productive leader is this idea of listening. And we always ask ourselves, how come people aren't doing what I asked them to do? Well, I, I don't know, I'd suggest asking them. They're the ones not doing right. it. Or maybe even asking them what they wanna do. What do they yeah. wanna do, you know? Maybe, maybe making it all about us isn't a very successful endeavor. Maybe we need to listen more to what they're wanting. What are the things you wanna work on? When we started the Communities Project, uh, you know, one of the big points that I wanted to get across, and I still want to get across to communities, is I'm not here to tell you what to do. I have not a clue in the world what you want to do or what your community needs. I'm here to provide you with a framework so that you all can figure that out for yourselves. And I'm not going to give you the answers. And, and David has sat through two days worth of training. I'm not going to give you the answers, and it's not just it, it's not just because I think you already have the answers. It's because I know I don't. Right. Because I'm not here. So I just want, I want to help you find the answer. I don't want to give you the, there's no empowerment in advice. I liked what you said. Uh, so we're, we're in St. Louis right now. Yeah. And you're from Seattle. I am. And I, I, I appreciated it today when you're like, hey, if somebody comes in from out of town like me, you know, from Seattle, and I come into your city and I say, hey, um, I'm going to help you learn how to community organize and here's what you need to do. You're, you said, you know what, you need to just turn around and walk away. Because if you have somebody that's not from your community coming in and telling you what your community needs to do, how would they possibly know that? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they don't have the basis for that. Right. Well, what they can have the basis for is principles, right? You can come in and you can share principles from which right. to work or a framework from which to work. And that's what I always kind of hope to do. I want to empower communities by giving them a framework. Here's a framework you can use. Now, where that framework might lead you, I have not a clue in the world. If it's something, you know, the fact of the matter is there's a million addiction related directions it might take you. You might go through a process and realize that you don't have enough recovery support services in your community. And that needs to be something that you 
use a community organizing framework to attain. You might realize, my God, we don't, our school district is completely behind the, the eight ball when it comes to prevention. We might still be using prevention programming, which we, we know to be ineffective. There! You might, uh, anyway. Um, exactly, right? Or, or, or you might find out you don't have enough treatment. You might find out any number of things. Right. And But you get to figure it out. And only you can figure it out. All I can do is provide a framework. And, and that's what the Communities Project, its aim is. Here's a framework for you to use in your community to help you figure out what your community needs. And I will be here. You want to call me up? You want to talk through where you've landed? You have a question? You want to think through something together? I am there for anybody who goes through one of these trainings. So... So you've been to now, what, 43 communities, correct? Well, you've done 43 trainings. Today, what, today was the 44th, actually. 44th. Today was the 44th training, yeah. Okay. And how many different communities have you been in to do those? Today would have been the 28th different community, because some of them we've done community uh, two trainings in. Okay. No, that's not true. I'm sorry. That's wrong. I, this is the 27 states. That's where I came up with that number. Um, but let's see. Out of that, there have been 40 different, 41 different communities. Okay. Sorry, everybody. 41. That's the number. <laughs> 41 different communities. For sure. For sure. <laughs> That's the absolute correct number. Okay. So being in 41 different communities and then seeing the ones that have had the best follow through, mm -hmm. um, what are those qualities that you've noticed um, maybe that they exhibited in a meeting or that they've exhibited? Because not only I, – one of the cool things I think is it's not just, hey, I'm going to come in and do this training and then peace, I'm out right? Um, it's, hey, I'm going to come in and do these trainings, and then we're going to have monthly phone calls, and we're going to have people share their successes, and if somebody needs help, ask for help, and there's other communities on here that are doing the things that you probably need help with, that they can either give you feedback or I'll connect you to later. You know, that's one thing that I've loved, you know, is the ability to kind of reach out to people and have people reach out to me and kind of give them a little bit of feedback about, things that we've been able to do successfully or things that I'm not sure how to do. And hey, here's this community in Rochester, New York, mm -hmm. you know, that's already doing what you want to do. So here's the person you need to talk to. So, but going through that, what are a couple of those qualities you think that whenever you left a training, you're like, you know, I feel really good about them following through. It's a great question. Um, my answer changes all the time because I, I sometimes am surprised. I've had times when I've thought a community would follow through. Uh, I think I always have a part in it. You know, I, I want to, I, as a person in recovery, I always try to focus on my own part in things and, and that I'm responsible for results that I'm producing. Um, oftentimes, I think it's, you know, how diligent am I about following up with communities? I think that that can be, uh, I'll take responsibility in some cases where I might not do it quite as well. I'd say what I observe from other communities um, first and foremost, it's uh, how bought in are, are they to the process to begin with? Do they really know the training that they're about to go through? Because one thing about the Communities Project trainings that I think it's very different than trainings that we usually have in our field. And I think that that's, it's different because we're not talking about direct service. And oftentimes in the course of the training, uh, folks will have to hear me, I'll almost cut off a conversation that starts, to, you know, kind of dissolving into well, the right policy to implement here is this, or here's a program we use, right. because that has nothing to do with this training, right? The truth of the matter is, the Communities Project training has very little to do with addiction. You could take that training and the framework of it and insert affordable housing in any number of different places and have a virtually unchanged training. Well, so, that's good. Well, I think, <laughs> I think yeah. it's because we're, we're not talking about addiction here. We're talking about 
uh, a different, we're talking about a framework. So I think that an understanding of that going in is, is good. And I think that's my responsibility to make it clear to this, make sure that folks understand what it is that I'm bringing to them. And I think it's also the, the host community's responsibilities as they are out promoting the training to right. communities. So I think that that's one factor. Um, then I think there's that X factor, which is just how committed are they and, and how comfortable are folks in these communities with the idea of putting their egos aside. And I say that just because uh, one of the keys to successful community organizing is it's, and I, I said this today at the training I did, uh, it's not about you as in the individual. It's about all of you as in the collective. Right. and working together and look at a group full of 20 people you're going to have 20 different viewpoints and successful organizing at the beginning involves those 20 people making a choice to unify behind a common goal and in making that choice that group of 20 people is creating a tremendous base of power okay from which to work so the more communities are able to successfully do that the more success they will have with this framework and the better results they will produce. So now I want to talk about your training style. Um, the participants in the group talked more than you did over the course of this training. Um, it, a lot of times I'm used to going to trainings where it's just a straight lecture. You know, Now, it's generally not as bad as somebody just reading off a PowerPoint. Uh, but sometimes it is, and that's like watching paint dry, right? But wh why do you think it's so important for you to go in there and kind of uh, literally have more talking done by the participants than by the person who's facilitating the group? Sure. Well, I think that for a couple things. One, I'll say that, you know, in the last 18 months, I've done 44 trainings. So I've been... Um, blessed with numerous opportunities to mess up and to not do as good a job as I'd like right. to do. And as a result of that, I learned something new just about being a trainer, every single training. I mean, no joke. I know it sounds crazy, but after every single training, I walk away, you know, thinking um, something will never quite sit right with me. And I always try to ask for feedback from people. Um, so the reason why I, I, I really have started to do a heck of a lot less talking and letting participants talk is because it's not about me. It's not the Michael King show, and it's, it's not even the Communities Project show. This is about St. Louis or Springfield or Richmond, Virginia or Detroit or wherever else I, I choose to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to bring one of these trainings. It's not about me, but if I'm standing up there and I'm lecturing, if I'm teaching, for right. hour upon hour upon hour, it quickly becomes about me. And if it's about me, it's, it's not about you. And if it's not about you, it's not about the community. And if it's not about the community, I don't know what we're doing at a training about community organizing. Right. Um, I want to make it clear to everybody who comes to our trainings that they are, what, they are the focus here. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to have them do most of the talking. Okay, that makes sense. So... <clears throat> So when you first came through and worked with us, I mean, there was literally months that were built up to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that, that really helped me. It was something, and I kind of learned a little bit from it too. I was already trying to do it with the groups that I did, mm -hmm. where I have events that I do, and I found that it was best to get captains mm -hmm. 
and then put people underneath the captains. And that way, I, A, I only have to talk to five people instead of talking to 25, 30 people. Mm-hmm. And then they can kind of regulate their groups. Is that, are you still doing that? I was just kind of curious. I've moved away from that, I've moved away from uh, that framework, but not for any reason other than um, people haven't asked for it. Um, I think that it it can be a really smart way to do things. And what I would uh, often recommend or suggest is to look at uh, who are thought leaders across each different sort of addiction group, recovery, families, treatment, public health, prevention, and identify folks in each of those communities who can then conduct outreach into those communities. That changed over time a little bit just because I found that I did not hear from a lot of people that it was producing results that they liked. Hearing from you that it produced results that you liked and, and felt positive about right now makes me rethink how I've done that of late, you know? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm always wanting to ask and hear from people, what results have you produced? How did you get, produce them? Uh, do you like them? Do you not like them? And figuring out what needs to change about the actions that are taking right. place in order to produce different results. So what you just gave me was a piece of feedback. That was feedback for me, which right. is helpful. Unfortunately, I've probably given you a lot of that. Uh, no, three no, and a half hours in a car driving yesterday. No, was. no, no. Feedback is, I mean, this is something that um, a mentor of mine uh, in the leadership development world talks about the, the need for us to solicit feedback. I mean, uh, everybody who is taking on any kind of a leadership role, whether as a community organizer, as a director of an organization, leader of an agency, whatever it might be, um, Asking for and accepting feedback, in my experience, has been critical for growth. And I want to emphasize that doesn't mean always agreeing with it um, and certainly never arguing with it. Accepting it, I might not take it, but I'm going to accept it and hear it and then figure out on my own if it's something I'm going to use or not. But it's a, for me, it's been a critical development in growing my own leadership ability and, frankly, training ability too. Now, I would consider you an acquaintance. Um, I think friends, that, that there's just more to it. I mean, we've met and talked on the phone multiple times. I would say we're colleagues in a way. Mm-hmm. We're acquaintances. Um, like I said, you and me had a conversation about friends. Uh, I won't even get to on this because it would probably offend a lot of people <laughs> on my side. Um, but I really enjoyed the fact that we, we spent three and a half hours in a vehicle last night. We did. And we talked about so many things, including things that we had opposing viewpoints on. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that people are losing is the ability to have conversations with people that have opposing viewpoints without either getting angry or threatened. Absolutely. And I think that it's really important for us. I think you even talked about it in the training today. It's important for us to, uh, why, let me ask it in the form of a question, how about that? Why is it so important for us to be able to have conversations with people that may not have the, that, that may have diametrically opposite viewpoints, especially in community organizing? So I'll, I'll, I'll speak to it only in the lane of community organizing, if I, if I may, uh, for, for any number of different reasons. So if we're organizing a community, Inevitably, what we're trying to do is accumulate power. By accumulating power, and, and I like to define power, uh, and all, another line from a mentor, uh, a define power as the ability to make choices, right? And we want to make choices in order to change policies, 
right? Change policies, change culture surrounding policies. Well, in order to do that, talking to a bunch of people who agree with you already seems like a poor use of your time and resources. The only way that you're gonna get anything done over time is by conversing with people, many of whom you may have diametrically opposing viewpoints with. And it doing so in such a way that they feel heard. Uh, I, I always tell a story about being in a copy shop in Seattle prior to a training and having a, an owner of the shop come up to me with a diametrically opposed viewpoint to mine. And I was having a what I felt was a constructive and interesting conversation. And another gentleman in the store started yelling at the guy. And in my view, that's just a completely unproductive way of moving forward because at the end of the day, the, the, the person out there who thinks that addiction is a choice, who doesn't believe that those uh, people suffering from substance use disorders deserve love, attention, uh, a place within the healthcare system, uh, well, guess what? That's who we need to persuade. Right. We already have the, the people who attended our training today. We don't need to talk to ourselves. We all agree on this issue. You and I spending hours and hours and hours talking purely about addiction to one another would probably be silly because right. unless we're working together on a project because, well, we agree on what needs to be done in this particular arena. It's everybody else we need to go talk to. So community organizing requires acknowledging all sides of a debate and then figuring out how you're gonna move people, how you're gonna persuade people. Sometimes that's, as I talked about today, through going down the route of conflict. Sometimes it's through finding consensus. That's something that local organizers need to figure out for themselves. But we can't shy away from those tough conversations. Those tough conversations are where change comes from. Change, every change we've ever gone through starts with conflict and with a tough conversation, or 20. That's the way it goes. So we need to get away from this idea that those conversations are bad or um, scary, you know? It's where change comes from. And that's critical for an organizer. It doesn't matter if it's on addiction or anything else. Right. I, I always joke with people, and unfortunately, sometimes it's kind of true, though, that that I, my recovery is to Jesus for the recovery people, and then mm -hmm. I'm to recovery for the Jesus people. So. Uh -huh. So often I find myself on both sides talking to people. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing is sometimes I'm talking to both sides like about medication. You know, uh, when it comes to like psychopharmacology, I have religion on one side that's going, yeah, you know what, they just need to pray. And I have people on the other side going, well, all they need to do is what I do. They don't need medication. Um, so I think those conversations are necessary because I've seen how having those conversations, I, mm -hmm. you know, could introduce you to somebody who has faith-based recovery housing that when I first met them was 100% opposed. Like literally I had to talk them into allowing Narcan there because they did not want a drug within their house. And, you know, I bumped into, bumped into him and he literally made a point to walk up to me and go, hey, I just want you to know I opened up my first uh, medication-free house. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, if I would have just, I think sometimes when people hear conflict, they think, ah, you know, I'm just going to beat the crap out of this person mm -hmm. verbally. And we had conflict, which was me having a dissenting opinion and me continually talking to them about why I felt as strongly as I did about my opinion and then listening to them in turn. Right. Because conflict doesn't mean I have to shout over somebody and talk somebody down. But I think through that conflict, and I think that's an important thing for people to realize is Sometimes that conflict may be shouting somebody down. It may be civil disruption. But 
a lot of times that's not what conflict is. Mm -hmm. Conflict, I think, is just dissenting opinions and making sure people are aware of those dissenting opinions. Am I right? Am I hearing that right or wrong? Well, I think you're hearing that right. I, I, I think you, you've heard it for yourself, which is, I think, what matters. Something I've, you know, I think that's right. what matters. We all have to kind of uh, process these things on our own terms. But somebody said in our training today, and I thought it was, I was so glad it came out relatively quickly. Uh, and this person said it almost, um, they almost sounded embarrassed to, to say it at first. And it was interesting because it was exactly what I was hoping I'd hear somebody say, which was that conflict can be opportunity. And, you know, Saul Alinsky, who is the kind of considered the father of modern community organizing, would tell you, he, he would argue, and I don't necessarily agree with him, frankly, that everything good, all change, starts with a, from a place of conflict. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I certainly think it's a lot true, if right. you will, right? So, um, yeah, I just, you know, conflict is, you know, look, we wouldn't be here talking. The Communities Project wouldn't exist. Better life and recovery might not exist if it wasn't for conflict. I and mean, we have it right now when it comes to how our communities are handling substance use disorders. If we didn't have any conflict, there wouldn't be a need for us to work together or have a conversation. What are we all trying to do? Provide, at the end of the day, there is no issue that I've encountered at least where more people have one shared vision and yet too often struggle to work together behind that vision. The vision, what we, we all want the same thing. We all want fewer people to lose their lives. We all want fewer moms and dads to bury their kids, fewer partners to bury their spouses. That's what we all want. And we all come at it from our own experience and slightly different angles. And yet we argue with each other constantly and we fight and it's egos get in the way and you name it. You and I have talked about these things at length over the last two days together, you know. I would argue, and this is just my own, I'm editorializing, that if we can't get through that, and I think community organizing is the way to do it, but if we can't get past that, we're gonna, we could, you and I could sit and have exactly the same conversation five years from now, and we can't do that. Too, we're losing too many people right now to let that happen. And, and I think we, we have some things out there that are effective. We have pieces, and we need to continue adding more pieces. But I think you're absolutely right. This is what I talk about. I mean, literally, prevention early intervention treatment recovery supports harm reduction we all support each other mm -hmm. you know and yet i see so many people fighting against others well they need this not that they you know we need funding not you i mean uh, and what's even worse is when i see people within mm -hmm. like treatment fighting treatment recovery support fighting recovery support and i think that's where you're right i think sometimes it boils down to ego mm -hmm. um i think other times it boils down to people that are afraid that somebody's going to take what they have. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, one of the greatest things I ever did was sit down and talk to a guy. His name was uh, Jim Harriger. Mm -hmm. And Jim Harriger was the director of uh, the kitchen and Victory Mission in Springfield. And I was talking to him about building my nonprofit and wanting to be able to reach out to people. He said, you know what, I'll be back in a minute. And he, he came back and handed me a bunch of papers stapled together and I said what is this he said that's my donor list hmm. and I was like why are you giving me your donor list you know uh, aren't you afraid that people will stop giving you money and he said no he said people believe in what we do he said but if they believe in what you do they will give you money on top of what they give us they're not gonna stop giving to us because we do good work and I know we do good work mm -hmm. and that blew me away I've never had anybody that was like that that I've ran into. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked about the McShin Foundation. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, the fact that I have gone to them for things that other people have told me they would have to charge me money for. Mm -hmm. They're like, sorry, but that's proprietary and you're going to have to pay. Mm -hmm. Or they've just said, sorry, we don't share that. And literally, you know, I talk to them about stuff and they're like, oh yeah, here, let me email you something. And generally it's above and beyond what I even asked for. Mm -hmm. I think that we're so busy trying to find, sometimes we're so busy looking at the people that we don't work well together with that we don't look for the people that we do work together well with. Mm. And I really think that that's going to be, that that's huge is for us to find those people, you know, um, because the truth is if what I'm doing, I'm doing well, those other people are going to jump on the train eventually, mm-hmm. you know, no, they're going to miss the, the train when it leaves, but they're going to jump on the caboose. That's what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of times, maybe if you're a startup organization, people are going to sit around and watch you for a couple of years and see what you do before they really get behind you. Because there's so many flashes in the pan that come out for a year or two, mm. and then they dissolve. That's right. Because they have the passion, but that passion only burns for so long. And then if commitment doesn't kick in, then that passion burns out. Yep. You know, I, I think that's one of the huge things you said. Passion without commitment, without follow-through, without action it is, I mean, it, it, it's cute. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. It gets you out of bed, but it doesn't keep you out of bed, and it doesn't get you doing anything. That's right. Passion doesn't build buildings. Right. Action does. Commitment does. That's right. So I, I think we're probably going to wrap up a little bit. Um, I did want to give you an opportunity really quick. I know uh, you had gone through, what is it, JLUSA? Yes. Just Leadership USA is a, a national uh, criminal justice reform organization. And, and part of my story involves incarceration. And uh, they have an amazing leadership development program called Leading with Conviction that uh, is for formerly incarcerated individuals, returning citizens to um, further develop their own leadership capability. They also do a series of one-day trainings, which they call their Emerging Leaders Program. And they're just an amazing group, not only for leadership development, but their entire structure of how they operate uh, has just been, I think, immensely successful. And they're definitely a group that I look up to as a, a model for how to set a goal, a strategy, and then lay out the tactics in order to find that goal. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about? or? I think, you know, after I have to say after two six-hour trainings and 24 hours, my voice is just about shot. Right. And I think you're getting ready to go. Hopefully watch the Pirates beat the Cardinals. That's my hope. Sorry, St. Louis. Go Pirates. <laughs> As a Cubs fan, I, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> so, Michael, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for recovering out loud, for having a visible and vocal recovery. I'm big on the hashtag Hope Dealer thing. And if you've never heard me kind of explain what that is. Um, you are a hope dealer. A hope dealer is somebody who has overcome and then shares that victory to help empower others. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love the fact that you are, I mean, you're everywhere around the country trying to empower other people. And for that, I mean, I salute you. Well, so thank you for what you do. Thank you for sitting down and having a conversation. Thank you for the last 12 hours of training I've got over the past two days. And I just hope that, uh, you continue with this and I'm really excited to see what your next project is going to be. So thanks a lot. Thank you, David. In closing, I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a better life and recovery page on Facebook, or you can, uh, we're on Twitter, uh, B L I R underscore N P O. Also, this podcast is part of the studio DNA podcast network. 
You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week. It's another episode of Sports Yak Podcast. Who types this stuff? Just run it, hit play, hear it, get it done with. I'm Jim Shorts. I'm an icon. The class of 2019 Indiana sports writer and sportscasters, Hall of Famer, Chuck Freebie, and the other butt monkey. Who cares? Hit the subscribe button. I'd hate to miss a second of this junk. Sports Yak, the podcast. Now that's good. Now turn it off.